I encourage you to uh, look for one at the end of your row, um, poke your neighbor on the shoulder, see if they could pass you one. We have several scattered throughout here. Uh, we just take books of the Bible for the most part. We have some topical series, but we take books of the Bible for the most part and just let the Bible kind of dictate what we cover. And so today we find ourselves in Second Peter chapter 3, having preached through chapters 1 and 2 over the past four or so weeks. Uh, we have this week and next week in Second Peter. And so uh, while we are looking at this, I want you to also know if you don't own a Bible, there's a Getting Connected corner out near the coffee table, and there are uh, giveaway Bibles that we would love for you to have. So uh, we want to make sure that you have a copy of the Word of God. We do believe it's life for us, and it connects us to our Savior. So that's why we're uh, in the book of Second Peter now, and I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 1 through 13. And I am just going to read uh, verses 8 through the end, uh, 8 through 13, but we will be working on verses 1 all the way through 13. So, the Word of God says this, verse 8, chapter 3 of Second Peter. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let me pray. Father, we ask that by your amazing mercy, that you would meet with us in power. I pray there is a sober and joyful expectation that you will work for our good this morning. And that you will prep us because we expect that you will use your people to bring you glory with their lives. And so, Lord, right now, I just pray. I pray for protection. I pray that you would protect from discouragement. God, I pray that you would protect from over-self-focus that leads to blindness to you. God, I pray that you would protect us from sin that we might be running into that is destroying our lives and shackling us rather than setting us free. God, I pray that you would protect us by giving us a longing and a thirst and a hunger for you. Give us eyes to see you and hearts that leap for you. Father, you are a great provider. You are the lover of our souls. You are steadfast in all that you do. And Father, I just ask that you'd help us to see that you are at work. And so right now in these moments, change us on the spot. Work by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, last Saturday, I returned to the United States with a group of 13 others because we had just taken a trip to Guatemala City. And that trip was phenomenal. You'll hear more about it next uh, Sunday. But I wanted to begin um, by just expressing that we prepped for nine plus months leading up to this trip. We were going to work in an orphanage. There's about 57 orphans um, plus workers there on this 
a place called Fundaninos, and this orphanage was connected to a uh, a church that is in a, a similar partnership with us, and so we knew that this church was walking alongside these orphans and discipling them in the ways of God. So we were excited to go, but there was one small problem in our prep. We kept asking over and over for them to tell us what in the world we were going to be doing. So it was like, okay, what will we be doing? And I would list like, okay, here's what we can do, three or four different options. And I'd get an email back that was like one or two words <laughs> with no lead on what we were doing. So, you know, I was fine. Nine months out, we're good. I just, as long as I can plan, okay. We're a month out, okay. I'm, I'm okay. We're trying to plan here. Just want to make sure the team's prepped. Many of these people have never been overseas before, so I feel a special burden. And so we are on the plane, and still, I don't know what we're doing. We, have, we know that we will be doing some projects in the morning, and then in the afternoon, we're going to be hanging out with these children. And so they basically just said, just think more informal. So, I mean, we're, we got silly string. We got over 55 cans of silly string at the dollar store. We got nail polish so that we were going to paint nails and stuff. We got all kinds of uh, balls. We play four square, soccer, all kinds of things. So, but we had no idea exactly what we would do each day. When we show up, Monday comes, and an hour into the day, we're prepping, getting ready to start our projects to try to serve this orphanage so that the leaders can pour more into the children because they have the deeper relationships. And as we go to start a project, all of a sudden, the teacher of the school that's there on the campus where all the kids go comes up to us and says, hey, we've got an idea. We're going to cancel school today, and we need your team to watch the kids all day long. We were like, great, because, you know, in our preparation, we had gone to Chick-fil-A, and when we got to Chick-fil-A, we said, now this is our mantra, un placer, which is, it's my pleasure. Whatever we can do, we're going to do it. So we said, whatever comes, it's our pleasure. So we said that, but after the first day, we had exhausted everything that we brought, okay? It was like, what else are we going to do? Okay, we're here for five more days. What do we do? But... We, we just stuck with it. The next day, after we loved on these children, the next day, a preschool teacher didn't show. And so thanks be to God that we had two that were teachers on our team. And so they jump into a preschool, get a couple of helpers, and they, in a language that they don't know, they lead a preschool class. On top of that, we also were like, okay, what projects are we going to do? We had no idea exactly what projects we would do. Well, they said, what you're going to do is one of the projects, I really think we need you to mow. Okay, wasn't thinking about that. Mow seven acres with a push mower. <laughs> Great. <laughs> our pleasure, our pleasure, whatever we can do. But you know what? Several of the people on the team had paid for part of their trip by mowing yards. So we had a lot of mowers on our team. So we just went at mowing. And then finally... These children, they did not speak English. They spoke, uh, some did. The older ones were working on English. But most of our team did not speak Spanish. We had Quinny who knew Spanish really well. But we were, you know, struggling in the language, enjoying it. But you build trust through relationship and conversation. So we didn't have a lot of trust built with these kids. So they were a little distant at first. We would just sit down and eat with them, try to build relationships. Well, one day... Some of our teenagers walk into the Commodore, the kitchen, the cafeteria area, and as we walk in, we see these teenagers, just a few of these girls, and they were dancing. This is what they did to kind of fill some of their time. They danced. Well, I didn't fully realize this, but we had several on our team with the spiritual gift of dancing. So they go in. It's not necessarily a spiritual gift, but the Lord is with them. And so they come in, and they just watch their dance. They're like, woo! you know, and just celebrate their dancing and say, hey, we can dance too. And so all of a sudden they just start dancing. And you wouldn't believe what would have taken weeks upon weeks was broken down in a moment. It was like, okay, like we can talk. And so relationships began to be built. They began to open up to us. And the trip was a, a wonderful opportunity to help them see Jesus's love in and through us. Now, what we wanted to celebrate was that God was at work even when we couldn't necessarily see it. Months before, God, are you working? What are we doing? He 
wanted us to trust him. But he was at work the whole time. He brought us mowers. He brought us teachers. He brought us people with the ability to dance. And this team coming together, and he showed off his glory by saying, I've been at work all along, and I'm going to use you to reach these children. Friends, God is at work even though you might not be able to see it in your life. And Peter is passionate in this passage to come to this church and to say, no matter what you're saying to yourself, no matter what's being said around you, God is at work and he keeps his word. He is a provider, which is the banner over this entire series. He is a provider. And so today, as we dive into this text, Peter wants to show us three aspects of God and then our response. Three aspects of this great God that shows how he is at work. And here are the three aspects. Our God is an intervening God. And therefore, we trust him. Our God is a patient God. And therefore, we praise him. And our God is a God who will come again. His son will return. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And therefore we wait. We long for him to come. So let's dive in here. Number one, our intervening God. Our response is that we trust him. Let's begin at verse one. Peter says this, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So we have recorded in the scriptures, first Peter, this is second Peter, second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. Now, beloved is used regularly throughout this text because this passage specifically is a heavy passage. Talks a lot about judgment. There's a lot of potential fear that can come over the people. And he just wants to remind them that if they are in Christ, they are loved. And he loves them. And he is only sharing these things because of his intense love for them. They are loved ones, beloved. And so he says, I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of these letters, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder we heard this very same kind of talk in chapter 1, stirring you up by way of reminder because we all, they were forgetful people. Don't forget this. And what does he want them to remember? Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the prophecies of the holy prophets of the Old Testament. We had heard earlier that no prophecy came to us by the will of man but it came to us by God our great God carrying along humanity choosing specific individuals to give a message to and they would give this message and some of it would be recorded for us as God's word to us don't forget their message he's saying because it's my message don't forget it Christ has come. He will come again. There will be a day of judgment upon the ungodly and there will be a massive salvation rescue for those who trust in me. Don't forget this. And don't forget, it says, the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Interestingly here, he is equating the words of the apostles with the commandments of Jesus. Jesus here called the Lord and Savior and he is saying that our great God worked through the apostles to give us, to remind us of the commandments of Jesus so that we would know how to live and how to go hard after God. So don't forget, don't forget the holy prophets, don't forget Jesus' commands given to us by the apostles. And here's why he says don't forget, because people are saying something different. Look at verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers... Those who are making fun of, those who are deceitful and twisting truth, they will come in the last days with scoffing and they're following their own sinful desires. Now here he is talking, saying they will come in the last days, and yet Peter already said at the day of Pentecost that we are actually in the last days. So he's also addressing some people that were even within their midst. 
false teachers, scoffers within their midst who are saying something that is undermining the trust of the people in God. You following? But it's also a promise that more like them in the church will come again soon. Until Jesus comes again, there will constantly be scoffers. People wanting us, God's people, to call into question God's word. So here's what the scoffers are saying. Look at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he? I don't see him. Time's expired since Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And they're like, he promises to come back, but I don't see him. Hear what they say. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ever since they died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. It's just riding along. Some of us might have similar questions. It's been thousands of years. Jesus said he was going to come again. Where is he? And then you have the crazies that think they can predict when he can come. And that discourages everybody because they don't know. And what do we have? We have these scoffers who are just saying, you can't trust him. Ultimately, they are calling into question two things. Number one, our God is not intervening in history. He's not at work. He said he would, but he's not. And then therefore, if he's not, it calls into question the bottom line foundation. You can't take him at his word. God's not been at work. Therefore, you can't trust him. You follow this? God's not intervening. Therefore, you can't believe what he says. This is what false teachers and scoffers do. They call, they call you to listen to yourself or to listen to them over the living God. And it might sound kind of foolish right here in the here and now, but we do it all the time. We begin to listen to those who are really, I mean, they are emotionally, we are, aren't we? We're emotionally up and down. We're confused about decisions we need to make. We feel certain about the future at one minute and totally unclear the next. We feel really confident at one moment and terrified the next. And these are the people we listen to over God. We listen to our hearts and we call God into question. And so Peter says, beloved, beloved, remember what God has said. Remember the commandments of Jesus who did come. He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies and therefore you can trust him to do what he says he's going to do. Believe him, take him at his word. Look at verse 5. Peter begins to kind of argue against the scoffers. And he says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Here's what he's saying. Okay, you bring up the idea of creation. You see that at the end of verse 4? What the scoffers are saying are that... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter wants to take their words and undo what they're thinking. So, you say everything's been the same since creation. Well, let's just take creation for example, okay? Let's just focus in on creation. Creation is a God who intervened in the midst of chaos and created order and beauty, okay? All of a sudden, your non-intervention theory is crumbling. God intervened. But let me tell you also, he continued to intervene. Let's take the story of Noah. Noah and the flood. There was wickedness all around. And God came and he intervened. He judged with water the wicked and the ungodly with a just punishment. And with that same water, he spared Noah who was righteous by faith. God's been intervening. He continues to intervene. He's not absent, as the scoffers might say. And so when you look at it in verse 5, and it says, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, 
you hear passages like Genesis chapter 1 ringing in your ear. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, and God said, and let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let the sky open up and let, there se- let it separate the waters from the waters. Let there be water in the sky and water down low. And then Genesis 1.9. And God said, let the waters under the sky, under the heavens, be gathered together in one place and let dry land come up through it. So this is what he's talking about. He's referring to Creation, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Do you see that in verse 5? By the word of God. This is why he's not only trying to address that God is still intervening, but he's addressing the foundational objection, which is God's word can't be trusted. And he says, how did all of this happen? It happened because God spoke and you can trust him. That's the argumentation of Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. It says this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deep in storehouses. He's big enough to take all the oceans and categorize them. Put them away in some small little storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants in the world stand in awe of him because he spoke and it happened. He commanded and it stood firm. Do you see what what he's doing? He's connecting his insertion by speaking words and creating and he is saying, this proves I can be trusted. I keep my word. The very thing that the scoffers were seeking to undo He is saying, stand in awe. When I speak, it comes to pass. And so, now you dive in at verse 7, and it says, And by this same word, God's sure word, that when he speaks, it comes to pass, not only did I create, not only was I at work in the story of Noah, but I've always been at work. Because he says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth, that right now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's saying that he is still at work preparing a day when all those who do not trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, they will meet their maker And all the rebellion, whether they thought it was closet or whether it was rampant, it will meet a day of reckoning. And God is at work even now by that same sure word to guarantee that justice happens on the last day. Justice will happen. But not only justice but mercy. Grace upon grace will happen on that day. And this is when he, I think we need to remember what he's already said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when it says, And then the Lord, he knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So what is he doing right now? He is both preparing his people to get to the end and experience the deluge of mercy and grace and eternity forever with him. At the same time, he is also intervening, storing up wrath and justice for those who are against God with their lives. He is still at work, is the argument. Our God is still intervening. He's intervening. We just got a puppy, our little dog, Josie. And Josie, sometimes she's just too much for us. So we chain her up and put her in the back. And we have this massively long cord that maybe is as long as this stage, stage and a half or so, really long. And we chain it up to this really stable object and have at it. But that keeps her from running away and keeps us being able to see her. 
keeps us able to see her. Yeah. So there's a problem though. The problem is, is that there are things on our back patio. There are chairs and tables. There's a grill. There are plants. And what she remarkably does, you know, it's almost like, you know, how in the world if you take your headphones that you might listen to and you just put them in a bag, somehow they, they come together and they do this. And they're all in one big knot so that when you pull them out, you cannot undo them. Well, my dog has that same gift. And so she will run in and out of this table, go around this tree and go around the grill, and then all of a sudden be massively confused when she can go nowhere. You know, what was now massively long is about that long. And she's like, you know, just howling because she doesn't know how to fix this thing. And so this happened yesterday. And I was mowing, and I go and I put my weed eater down. Terrified of the weed eater is this puppy, okay? But the only way to help my little puppy get free was to pull her back through this little chair and to pull her back around, but she saw the weed eater. She was clawing and scratching, and I'm pulling with all my might, and I'm pulling her back, and I finally get her through there and pull her this way and pull her this way, and then finally it begins to dawn on her, oh, this is going to work out. And so I let her go, and then she has all of the chain, and she can just run. She's been set free. C.S. Lewis shares a similar analogy by saying, don't say God is not intervening in your life. Just because at times he takes you backwards in order to send you forward. Don't say God isn't intervening in your life just because you actually have to face a fear in order to be set free. And friends, oh how tempting it is for us to be struggling in the here and now and to say, where is our God? I don't see him. And then when we say that and things get a little harder, it only seems to underscore it. He's not at work. I'm left alone. And Peter says, don't forget. Don't forget. God's word is true. I've always kept my word. I'm intervening right now, even if you can't see it. Sometimes I've got to take you backwards and I've got to pull you against your will in order to take you forward and set you free. Our God is an intervening God and therefore we must trust him. He is trustworthy. The scoffers were calling that into question, but he is trustworthy. Now, before we move on to the second point of our God is a patient God, and therefore we praise him, there's a couple of things that might be a little confusing that we need to make sure we understand. Verse 7, look at it with me. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This is a picture of judgment. What is this storing up for fire? It is what Romans 2 speaks of. And I want to read that for you. Romans 2 verses 3 through 8. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? Do you suppose that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, to brokenness, not to rebellion and to license. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up, here's the phrase, talking about the same idea, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God is intervening. He is at work. But he is at work to make sure that justice happens. All of us at some time or another have desired justice strongly. Haven't you? Haven't you been wronged by someone? And just 
the gut, visceral, immediate reaction is, I wish they would get what's coming to them. Haven't you ever thought, I just wish justice would happen. I sure hope so. Because to have a spiritual pulse is to go hard after matters of justice. Because it reflects our God. Haven't you been broken and hurting over the injustice of people being trafficked? Or haven't you been broken and hurting over the injustice of unborn children being slaughtered by the thousands? Haven't you been broken and hurting by government oppression? And don't you want justice to happen? Doesn't justice ring in your heart when you hear of senseless murders and abuse that happen in our city or our nation or our world? Doesn't justice just rise up and when will justice happen? And God comes and he speaks and he says, I want to free you. I want to free you not from the pursuit of living justly and helping others to live justly, but I want to free you from the pursuit of revenge. And I want to free you from the pursuit of bitterness. Because he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. One day I will fully repay. And what that does for the Christian the Christian wrestling through all of those fights for justice, what it should do is that then should melt their hearts to brokenness and say, oh God, come and change that person's heart. And if not, we know that they will face justice. Oh, may we be broken for sinners and not angry. May we long for them to repent because one day there's a day of judgment. And that's what verse 7 says. There is a judgment that is piling up with every deed, judgment upon judgment. For every deed that's happening, this pile of judgment is coming and it will be exacted on that day of judgment. You see that being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, destruction of the ungodly, it might sound like a sense of totally doing away with, but I think what we should think about here is the sense of perishing or dying that leads then to an eternal punishment. Because the scriptures do not speak about the etern about judgment and that day of judgment they don't speak about that eternal punishment as if it were a once thing that goes away but they speak about it Jesus speaks about it as an eternal conscious punishment eternal so just as believers trust in Jesus will experience an eternal life a life that never ends is full of joy in the presence of your savior the Bible speaks of an eternal destruction of the ungodly. A perishing of their lives that leads to an eternity away. And here's some of the verses where we get that. Mark 9 verses 43 through 48 says this. Where worm, this is a place where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Whether the fire is symbolic or whether the fire is literal is not the point. The point is, is that fire is regularly equated with the day of judgment from the Old Testament prophets and that that day of judgment will bring justice that will not be quenched because God is infinite, therefore the punishment will be infinite. The sin is against an infinite God the punishment will be an infinite punishment. Matthew 18, 8 says that it is an eternal fire, a never-ending fire. And Revelation 20, 10 says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented, and hear this, day and night forever and ever. And so this is what he's speaking of when he talks about a day of judgment. There will come a day, a day of reckoning for every person on the planet, every person in all of history. 
when deeds will be exposed. And those who say, I have nothing to stand on but faith in a Savior who died in my place. Jesus will say, that is enough. And my righteousness clothes you. And you will be in eternity with me with ever-increasing joy and satisfaction. But the Scriptures pose a different destiny for those who find themselves not trusting in Christ. If they trusting in themselves, they will prove themselves to be the rebellious people that they are. And the very justice that you long for in your heart for all of those broken moments in this world, that justice will be exacted. And they will spend an eternity away. And so, I've been reading a book by Leonard Ravenhill entitled, Why Revival Tarries. And he tells a story of a man named Charlie Peace. Charlie Peace was a criminal. It was said of him that the laws of God nor the laws of man curbed him at all. Nothing could stop him. And it says, finally, the law caught up with him and he was sentenced and condemned to death. And it says on the morning of his fatal, on his final walk, normally called the death walk, the walk to where he would be executed, before him went the prison chaplain. And that prison chaplain routinely and sleepily read some Bible verses. And the criminal touched the preacher and said, what are you reading from? And he says, I'm reading from a book called The Consolations of Religion. And Charlie Peace was shocked at how professionally he read these verses about hell. And here's what Charlie Peace said. He says, Could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scaffold as to lead a fellow human there and yet dry-eyed reed of a pit that has no bottom into which this fellow must fall? Could this preacher believe the words that there is an eternal fire that never consumes its victims and yet slide over the phrase without even a shake or a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say these things with no tears? You will be eternally dying and yet never know the relief that death brings? And all of this was too much for Charlie. And so he spoke up right before he was executed and he said to the preacher these words, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe... Even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees, and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Oh, that God would make us so happy that we will not face that judgment, but make us so broken that those around us will. That we find it worth living our lives to tell them. It would affect where we live. It would affect how we spend our money. It would affect how we spend our time. That we would be broken. That friends family who don't know Jesus would be separated from the glorious grace of the living God forever and ever. That day is coming. But friends, it's not here yet. We have a patient God. And you know what the Bible says? Look at verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you. 
Church, he's patient towards you. He's at work right now. All of the sins that you and I bring into this place, right now he is patient with you. He has brought you here. He is giving you the word. He is calling you to turn from sin and to find full delight and joy in him. He is patient with you. You know that word that you said that was really hurtful this past week? That thought you had that was horrible of revenge or lust filled? And he has you here pouring out mercy on you. He is patient towards you. So Peter's pleading, don't put the banner of slowness over it. Don't put God has failed and he doesn't keep his word over it. Put patient over it. Put slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love over it. That is our God. He is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. People perish because of their willful sinning against the living God and their refusal to trust in Him. God says, I am patient towards you because I want you to turn from sin and to trust in me with all your being. Friends, I want you to hear a story of the patience and mercy of God through the lives of Chuck and Jen Toscano. Come on up, friends. Like Sean said, my name is Chuck Toscano, and this is my wife, Jen, and uh, we're just grateful to God to be able to spend a few minutes uh, telling of uh, his mighty works in our in our life. Um, we met in, in 1994. Um, I was uh, fresh out of out of rehab. Um, I had just emerged from a very very dark period in my life, um, a downward uh, spiral of of sin and depravity. Um, I was doing a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of drinking. I was uh, gambling excessively. I was immersed in inappropriate physical relationships and and uh, and inappropriate uh, media um, and. Um, so God, God used rehab to to break um, that that um, that addiction to to drugs and alcohol. Um, but I was still a slave. I was still in bondage to uh, to gambling and to uh, inappropriate uh, media. I grew I grew up in New York and um, in a family where there was a lot of addiction. Uh, my dad was a very bad alcoholic, and uh, my mom remarried a compulsive gambler. And um, all those things, um, all those experiences with those addictions and then other experiences in my life uh, caused me to be a very angry person, um, mean at times, very distrusting person, um, and a person who relied on myself um, to make to make it. Um, so as I grew up, all these things just got stronger and stronger, um, these sins in my life. And when I went to college, it just pretty much exploded. And um, I ended up in a lot of really bad relationships and made a lot of really bad decisions. And that's where I was when I met Chuck. Anyway, when we met, when the first time I saw Jen, um, I was just blown away. Um, just so just beautiful and her personality was was dynamite and I just I instantly um, fell in fell in lust with her um, and so within a week of course I I asked her out and she said I said no and um, I said no because I was in a relationship and it was a really bad one um, but I still said no, and it was totally God's grace because he used that time for us to develop an amazing friendship, and, um, and I never had met any man who was as kind and um, such a great listener, and, um, and we, just, we just fell in love. We just were friends, and we talked, and we shared our hearts, and we shared our struggles, and, um, and eventually I ended that relationship to be with Chuck, and um, <laughs> and uh, as we were progressing in, in our relationship and we were falling in love, we went out to dinner one night. And at that dinner, um, as we knew we were moving forward, 
he assured me that he um, that the that the sins of his past were sins of the past, and that he did not gamble anymore, and he would not gamble anymore. And I believed him. And um, growing up in a home where there was a lot of gambling, I did not want that for my life. Um, but unfortunately, that was not the case. So part of the package of being a compulsive gambler is you are also a compulsive liar. You're a compulsive um, hider, uh, secretive um, betrayer. Um, it's a whole package deal. Um, um, but we carried on, and we immediately started making lots of many uh, wrong decisions. We um, began a physical relationship. We moved in together. Um, and then reality set in. Um, ironically, the honeymoon was over, and we weren't even married. Um, we had just the, the sin struggles that, that we were facing now totally became, became manifest, and um, really, um, it, it, it got very hard um, very quickly. Um, I, was, I was gambling. And, and along with gambling was all those, those other, other things that I mentioned that really, um, as you can imagine, really negatively uh, affected our, our relationship. Um, my anger only got worse with time. Um, I'm actually half Italian and half Puerto Rican, and that leads to a very fiery temper. And uh, that was... Um, we had some blowouts, blowouts, um, and it was a really hard time. I felt totally betrayed. I felt totally disrespected. Um, I felt that I couldn't trust him, um, and the the fighting was was really bad. Sometimes physical, not on his part, but on my part, um, and throwing things, and it was it was pretty um, out of control. So, what do we do? We got married, <laughs> and our friends and family to this day say that it's the best wedding that they've ever been to. It was it was the best wedding I'd ever I'd ever been to, um, and it was so good that I thought it was a good idea to invite all my buddies back to the house after the wedding. So our wedding night um, was a house full of of basically all my friends reminiscing about high school. Um, so we had a huge fight on our wedding night and went to bed not talking. And so um, we can laugh about that now, but that's a very sad way to begin your marriage. Yeah, and, and the real we didn't have role models for marriage. Um, my parents are divorced. My parents are divorced also. My, my sister is divorced. My brother is divorced and is struggling in a second marriage. Uh, my cousins are divorced. My mom is one of six, and four of them are divorced as well. So we didn't we didn't have too many uh, marriage mentors uh, in our lives, um, and um, and so I I just continued right right from the right from the jump. Um, we we're we we're in a cycle where I would I would gamble, um, I'd get caught, um, and then I would beg forgiveness, I would plead for mercy, I would promise to never do it again. And, um, and I would go about maybe six months or so, um, and then I would do it again. Um, willpower, in my personal experience, willpower is a short, very short-term solution to, a eternal, to an eternal problem. I never really forgave Chuck during this time. I just basically tolerated him. Um, and in the middle of that, we had two kids. And when um, our second son was about one years old, uh, things came to a head, and I was having a small play group at my house, and um, I got a phone call from the electric company. They were going to turn off our electricity because Chuck hadn't paid the bill in months. And that was the end for me, and I just told him I was done, and it was over. Um, and I started to look for jobs and had set up job interviews, um, because I was just, I, I'd had it, and that, that was pretty much the end of it for me. Uh, I love Jen, um, but I didn't really understand what love, what love was. Um, and 
I would just, I would continue to, to hurt her. I would continue to hurt her deeply, and, and that affected me for a short time, but even Jen said, that's it. I, I can't take it anymore. And within six months, um, by Christmas of that, of that year, 2002, I was, I was gambling again. Um, but then God began to move. Uh, God began to intervene in that spring. Um, I was driving to work one day, and I, I listened to Howard Stern, um, not the Howard Stern of, of that TV show, but the real Howard Stern, um, very inappropriate and, and, um, very, very worldly. And one day I just, I started flipping through the channels, um, I, and, and I landed on a, on a Christian station and I, I lived in Albany my, my whole life and I never, ever, ever heard of that station. So just an, another sign of God's God's faithfulness. Had never had never heard of that station, but I landed there, and it was early in the morning. I had a long commute, and so I got to listen every day. Um, so every morning, um, I'd listen to Focus on the Family, and Turning Point with uh, David Jeremiah. I'd get to work sobbing, and I'd come home at night, and I'd, I'd tell Jen the, the things that I had heard um, that morning, and started reading, reading my Bible from the beginning, in the beginning. And I thought he was crazy, because we had never opened a Bible in my life, and uh, had no idea what he was doing. But um, I didn't realize that God was working on my heart as well. And um, in my small circle of mom friends, there was a woman named Jenny. And Jenny was a believer. And um, she was the greatest example of kindness and grace that I had ever seen in my life. And she lived for Christ, but she, um, she's the perfect example of living in the world, but not being of the world. And she just reached out to me in this really dark time. Um, and she would always have her Bible open and she would share with me what God was doing in her life. Um, but she never pushed me because if she, I was at the edge and if she pushed me, I would have, I would have ran from her and she never did, but she used different opportunities and conversations and book clubs to share Christ and uh, made really intentional decisions and um, God was softening my heart through her, and, um, and then she told me that she was going to move and to leave and go back home to Florida. At that, at that very same time, uh, Memorial Day 2003, um, I, I call it my Abraham moment, but I woke up one morning and I just heard clearly from God that uh, he wanted us to move to North Carolina, just clear as day. And that it was it was time to move. And I woke up that morning. And I said, Jen, how do you feel about moving to North Carolina? And she said, Yes. Um, and and uh, God just did amazing things during that time. Um, so so I was I was learning God's word. I was learning about grace, and um, just I got to a point where um, God had had told me we were moving, and I just I just I needed. A sign. I just I, I hadn't gotten to Exodus yet, but I, I just basically was crying out, God, show me, show me your glory. So um, um, that's a longer story, but um, I I, re I received a ch a check, and we were broke because I was gambling, and just we received a check through the job that I had that that I was not expecting, and I just I just I sat in the bank parking lot, uh, just just sobbing and crying out to God. I just, I just, in that moment, I just, I cried out to God and just asked, asked him, begged him, just, just, just save me, save me from my sin and save me from myself um, and just to rescue me and, uh, and just, I, I asked for his forgiveness and, and uh, kind of committed my, committed my life to him because he, he moved, he showed himself just and so big, um, and uh, I, I know that that was the moment that I received salvation from from God. 
at that point I was not uh, fully on board with Chuck, but I wanted, I had a last desire to save our marriage. So I, we did come to North Carolina and as soon as we got here, he started looking for churches and we didn't know any, anybody. And so he opened up the yellow pages and just started finding churches for us. And the first two churches were not for me. I, I won't go into the details, um, but they just were not for me. And um, and I we got invited to go to a comedy show at Providence Baptist Church, and um, we weren't really sure what to think about that. And uh, but it was really funny, and we enjoyed it, and we went. And um, God just used that church and its people in a mighty way. And through the preaching of the word and the love of His people, I understood my sin and um, my role in our relationship and my need for a savior. And um, there at Providence, um, I surrendered my life to Christ and um, God just surrounded us with people who were pouring in, into us. We didn't know anything about, um, about Christ, about, about the word, about marriage in a different way. And so people just poured into us. And we finally um, took our eyes off of each other and started looking at him. And the bigger he became, the smaller we became, and our marriage began to heal. That selfishness and bondage, um, just I, I knew my sin. I, I, I carried a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. Um, so I knew how sinful I was but I didn't really understand God's grace and just the beauty of, of Christ. That's why you know, I treasure, treasure Christ and, and why he's so worthy of our, of our affections. Um, that's, that was huge for me to, to, to just learn about God's grace. Um, and our, our marriage was, was transformed because of it. Our, our marriage was, was transformed. It wasn't like we made a decision to heal our marriage. It was we made a decision to look at Christ, and he healed our marriage. And um, it was it was a pretty amazing thing that took a long time. It wasn't an overnight process. Um, there was a lot of years of struggle, and so there was a lot of years to heal. Um, but I want you to know that um, God, in his grace, has given me a love for this man that I never thought was possible and um, there were times where I could not wait for him to leave the house and go to work because I did not want to see him. I did not want to talk to him. And now we text back and forth all day because I don't want him to go to work and I miss him. And um, that's only God's grace. There were times when I didn't want to come home. There were times when I did not want to come home. Um, but now I'm, I miss I miss her all all day long, and and I, I can't wait. I can't wait to to come home and, and and see her. I also never thought that I could trust him or anybody again. I'm not a very trusting person, and God has given me a trust in Him where um, I trust His wisdom. I seek Him out, and I truly believe um, Him when He's talking to me now, which is not something that I ever thought uh, was possible. Um, so I just, I just want to tell you that um, God is always working. He never gave up on us. And um, I think a lot of people would have looked at us and thought we were hopeless people and would have given up on us and, um, and didn't and continued to pray for us and continued to love us um, even when we were unlovable. And so I just want to encourage you to don't give up on people and um, to love them and to continue to share with them. I was 30 when I came to know the Lord, and Chuck was 35. Um, God never stopped pursuing us. His timing is perfect, and um, he is trustworthy. Psalm 103, he redeemed our life from the pit, and he redeemed our marriage from the pit. He can do anything you know, with what seems impossible to man. It's possible with God. So we praise him. So are we thankful for the patience of God? Every one of us are underneath his patience right now. 
And it's that patience that leads us immediately to his throne of grace. Because he promises to come again. And that testimony, along with the patience of God, is meant to bring us to the brink of if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you feel like you've got one foot in and one foot out, if you're not broken over your sin, the text says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You're not going to know when it'll come. You can't predict it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything will be made crystal clear. For any of us, any of us who walk around with a lie believing that no one sees what we are doing in secret, this passage says, on that last day, everything will be exposed. It'll all be found out. We believe a lie when we say it's in secret, no one sees. And on that last day, there will be an exposure of our sins. And that is meant for those who feel like they can live in secret to do it no longer and to repent. And to draw near to Jesus. Because the day is coming. But friends. For those who do not trust in Jesus. When deeds are exposed. It will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. That they have chosen and earned eternal punishment. But for those who are believers. When our deeds are exposed, at the simultaneous moment that our deeds are exposed, we will be flooded by a clear sense of forgiveness and cleansing and washing and justification that will ring off of our mouths because it will only serve, it will only serve to magnify how good he is to forgive and to wash us clean. It will not serve to condemn you, but only build you up. It will serve so that your mouth on that last day will say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And by His blood, He did purchase a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you will not be able to stop singing that with a multi-ethnic family all around you singing the same song. You will find yourself glad in God for eternity. Dear friends, dear friends, the earth will be new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Our bodies will be new. You can look at Jesus for the example of what that might look like. It will have some resemblances of what is now, but it will be completely purified. So they use imagery of melting and fire and dissolving. But friends, we look towards on that last day when we are with Him that we will never again be jealous. We will never again want people to hurt. We will never have unfulfilled lusts. We will never again be in want. There will be no sin, no wrongs being done, no fighting no exhaustion over loving somebody, for love will be the air that we breathe. No battle with the devil, no false accusations from him or others. No injustice, only perfect justice. Pure racial harmony, no abuse, no death, no anger, no addiction, no up and down emotions, no depression, no anxiety, no feelings of emotional claustrophobia, no misunderstandings, no I can't do this, no defensiveness, no fear of people, only Jesus in that moment. And it says in verse 13, it says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's our new home. That's what we're bound for. For anyone, no matter your past, anyone who would call upon Christ to save them. Live in condemnation no longer. You trust in your Savior so that you would have as your home an eternity with Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask that a celebration genuinely would erupt in the heart. 
that you are our intervening God, and so we can trust you. And you're a patient God. Oh God, we long for you to come. We want justice to be done and us to be with you forever. But right now, may we not put the banner of slowness over it, but patient love over it. And while you give us breath, may we live our lives as long as you give us breath to see people come to faith in Jesus so that they might be spared the eternities of judgment and be ushered into the eternities of joy. God, I pray that we would see you as our patient God and we would praise you and we would believe you are coming again and therefore we would wait and long for you. Do that work in our hearts, I ask, because that's what we long for and were created for, to give you praise and to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.